Hi, I'm George Podarki. Cityscape won't be heard this week, so we can bring you a special presentation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign focused on waste reduction. Coming up, you'll hear a panel discussion produced in conjunction with BronxNet Television featuring an interview with the woman behind Fab Scrap. Over 20 billion pounds of textiles are sent to landfills every year. That includes scraps of fabric from the cutting room floor of fashion designers' studios. As WFUV's Natalie Migliori reports, Fab Scrap steps outside of the seams to recycle that excess material. Fab Scrap recycles unused fabric for over 150 designers in New York City. Founder Jessica Schreiber says the goal is to send the least amount of fabric to the dump. We either shred it to become insulation or keep the bigger pieces for reuse. And we've set up a sort of fabric thrift store for raw materials. Each designer fills a black bag with smaller scraps and a brown bag with materials sold in the fabric thrift store. Almost none of it goes in the garbage, unless it's spandex. Right now, there's currently no recycling option for spandex. Which means bigger scraps can be salvaged and resold. Schreiber utilizes fashion students to help her sort through excess fabric that comes in. It's a volunteer effort that she says the students don't leave empty-handed. They get their hands on lots of different fabrics. They get a little bit of trend forecasting because they get to see what really important brands were sourcing. Um, and then they get to leave with some free fabric. Yonkers teacher Crystal Barnes took her students on a field trip to Fab Scrap. She's consulting with them about what fabrics they should use for their design projects. Barnes says Fab Scrap teaches students like hers to set precedents for sustainability. They're going to come out and be productive citizens in their chosen field. Whether they stay specifically in fashion or not, it's still a great experience for them to see how things can go full circle and be recycled and used again. Fab Scrap says it saved nearly 120,000 pounds since they first opened shop. Schreiber says she's looking forward to saving tons more. I'm Natalie Migliori, WFUV News. Hello, my name is George Bodarki. I'm the news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from combating drug addiction to children in foster care to coping with grief. We're very pleased to be teaming up with BronxNet for our latest campaign focused on reducing waste. From disposable coffee cups to worn-out kitchen cabinets to leftover meatloaf, a lot of what many of us throw out each day adds up to a whole lot of landfill. With me now to talk about how we can reduce the amount of garbage we dispose of are three individuals who are helping to lead that charge. Robert Lee is the CEO of Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. The group works to help the hungry by rescuing and donating leftover food to homeless shelters. Jessica Schreiber is the founder of Fab Scrap, a nonprofit that recycles discarded fabric from designers like Marc Jacobs and Eileen Fisher. Also with us is Serge Lazarev. He's the founder of Green Tree Textile Recycling. Serge, I want to start with you. What's the mission of Green Tree? Well, Green Tree was founded to stop all post-consumer materials from entering the waste stream. So this is basically the clothing that we wear, the shoes that we wear, and uh, things that we use around the house like uh, sheets and towels. Uh, so we, we want to we make this textile recycling as convenient as recycling bottles and cans for people by uh, maybe bringing uh, textile recycling service to a residential building or to a farmer's market so they can recycle their unwanted textiles and these textiles don't have to enter the waste stream as they could be either 
uh, repurposed or recycled. Now you're focused on what you called post-consumer. Jessica, you are focused on pre-consumer. Yes. Now why don't you describe the difference and how you work with Fab Scrap? Sure. So um, post-consumer waste is uh, textile waste that's thrown out by a family or an individual. Pre-consumer waste, uh, textile waste that's thrown out by businesses or companies. Um, so Fab Scrap specifically addresses the fabric waste that's um, thrown out by the fashion, interior design, and entertainment industries. So we work with 180 different brands in New York City now and collect their unwanted fabric so we can either recycle it or reuse it. Um, we've created sort of a thrift store so people can come and shop for unwanted fabric. Just how much fabric typically would get thrown in the waste stream otherwise? Uh, quite a bit. Um, it depends on where you're looking for estimates. Commercial waste is kind of hard to measure. Um, but we've picked up over 120,000 pounds of fabric so far. Wow, wow. Serge, how much textiles have you collected since you've started Green Tree? Uh, since I started, it's too much to calculate, but it's approximately 50,000 pounds a month we're collecting. Wow, 50,000 pounds yeah, a month. Yeah, and, and I tell you that we're a small company. And how varied are the materials that you collect? How varied are they? Yeah. Uh, 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 I don't in terms of what you get in, clothing, or oh, furniture. So, so no, 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 we only we only work with uh, clothing or shoes okay. or sheets and towels. Uh, people try to give us other stuff, but uh, we don't accept it. We try to refer them either, you know, like for example, if they try to give us fabric scraps, we'll I refer them to Jessica. But uh, if they try to give us furniture, we'll refer them out to Salvation Army or uh, Goodwill or something. Like that. So you two know each other. We do yeah. know each other. Yeah. <laughs> work together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Textile waste is a small world. <laughs> it's a small world. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's move from textile waste to food waste. There's a whole lot of food waste in the United States. Robert, tell us about your organization. Sure, yeah. Rescuing La Fuzine is an organization that uh, aims to eliminate food waste to feed the hungry. And essentially, there's about 40% of the food that we produce in this country is being wasted. 40%? 40%. Wow. It's almost half. And it's just insane because when you just take one-third of that and bring it to the people who are food insecure you would eliminate food insecurity. So it, it, we essentially produce enough food in this country to feed everyone, and it's just a distribution problem, which is what RLC tries to do uh, by crowdsourcing the transportation of the excess food from restaurants to the hungry uh, by having a web application that allows people to sign up online and just volunteer to bring that excess food to where it needs to be. And how long have you been doing this now? We've been doing this for about five years. So five it got years. started in 2013. And how much food have you rescued? We've just hit the two million pound mark. Wow! So, yeah, so two million. We, I mean, it's it's still a drop in the bucket. I mean, compared to the ninety billion pounds of food going to waste every year, but it's a it's a milestone that we're proud of, and we've been growing extremely fast, and we're hoping to continue to grow. How many restaurants are you partnering with now? We work with about two hundred across the nation. Across the nation, so yeah. you're not just here in New York City. We have about sixteen branches that are across the across the nation. Wow! All major cities. Uh, pretty much just the coast, and then we have Tulsa and Chicago. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about what inspired you to get involved in waste reduction. Serge, what about you? So I was a, a polluter for about 15 years. I was working in a gasoline retail uh, business, and uh, some of the things I had to do was to sell cigarettes to people I'd known for years, and instead of uh, telling them don't smoke, I would have to tell them, hey, why don't you buy another pack of cigarettes? You'll save a dollar. So all of this didn't sit well with me. And I was looking to actually do something good instead of doing something negative. Uh, so I was looking at uh, 
recycling markets at this time. Uh, President Obama was his second year in office, and he was talking a lot about how the government is going to introduce all these green programs. And I started looking into recycling markets, and I checked out metals and bottles and cans, and all those markets were pretty saturated. There was a lot of uh, actors in there. And then I found an interesting statistic that textile recycling, that 85% of these textiles were not getting picked up by the industry. So I was, uh, you know, here I am selling gasoline that nobody can touch, that everybody hates to pay for. There's 10 of us on a one-mile stretch of road, and there's nobody's picking up textile recycling. And all I would have to do is get creative and make it convenient, and I think people would be on board. And you do that, you're based right here in the Bronx. We are based right here in the Bronx. We're in Hunts Point on uh, Whittier Street. Why did you decide the Bronx? Were you, are you from the Bronx? I, I am originally from the Bronx. When we came from uh, Moscow, we immigrated to the Bronx. Uh, I started my company in New Jersey because it was close to where my other job was, where I was doing the gasoline retail. Uh, but eventually I, I uh, finished with that and... Uh, I always wanted to work in New York City, and a lot of, of our work was already taking place in New York City. Uh, so fortunate to say, but New Jersey was not as friendly to recycling as New York City was. Uh, they're coming along. But, uh, yeah, so all our work is in New York City. A friend of mine told me, go to Hunts Point. You'll find great spaces there. Which How is big is your warehouse? Our warehouse is about 2,500 square feet. Okay. Holds yeah. a whole lot of It holds a whole huh? lot. We try not to hold on to it too much. You know, it's... Uh, more of a turnover situation, but yeah. Now your main goal is for reuse, correct? Taking in good items and getting them into other people's hands so they can use them again, is that right? The, the main goal is to keep the clothing or the shoes out of the landfill. So there's pretty much two avenues. There's either reuse or there's recycling. And uh, so we, we, we sort through this product in our warehouse, and that's when the turnover comes to, uh, comes in. We sort through this product in our warehouse and we determine what can be reused as clothing and what has to go to the recycling market and made into products like shoddy. Now you have charity partners that you work with to take the good clothing yes. and donate them so they yes. can be put to good use, right? Yes, yes we work with uh, a number of charity partners. We also work with for-profit businesses that can also reuse the clothing. So the charity partners uh, they are all focused also on specific missions, and they have specific needs. Uh, for example, I'm working with a pastor in the Bronx, and he works with the homeless, and he wants only like sweatpants and hoodies because that's convenient for uh, uh, people who live on the street to wear. And uh, Hostess Community College has a, a suited for success program where they dress their students who, who go to interviews and they need business clothing. So every organization has its particular need for what type of clothing they have and we try to accommodate them as best as possible. But how great to think that your old pair of shoes can be given to someone else who can use them to go on a job interview, say. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing that that can happen. Like, uh, you can have a lucky piece of clothing that you wore that made you feel good and you have accomplished a bunch of stuff. And, and if you could pass it on to somebody, if it's still in good condition, and they could wear it and they could be, you know, feel confident about themselves and be a shining star in what they do for that particular day. And as you mentioned, you have collection boxes, right? Yeah, so we collect uh, clothing in various ways. Uh, s some of it we collect through drop bins, which could be placed either outside uh, for public access. Uh, some of it we collect through 
uh, drop-ins in buildings, which we place in residential buildings, where the tenant of the building can go and dispose of their textiles at their convenience. People like to clean their closets at all kinds of uh, times a day. And uh, we also work with farmer's markets. If you live in a small building and you can't have a bin in there or there's no bin in your neighborhood, you can go to your local farmer's market and you can use our drop-off location there to discard of your unwanted textiles. So, Jessica, what inspired you to start up FabScrap? Sure. Um, prior to starting FabScrap, I actually worked for New York City's Department of Sanitation. Um, I started there in 2011 as an intern right when they were working on textile recycling and launching the Refashion NYC program. Um, so after my internship, I was kept on to manage that program. And um, now what was that program, for those unfamiliar? Yeah, the Refashion NYC program is a, donation, a clothing donation program in partnership with Housing Works, and it puts large donation bins similar to Surge into apartment buildings in New York City um, so that people can conveniently donate from home. Um, not everybody wants to bring stuff on a subway or in a cab, and so the thought was if we can make it really convenient to donate, then more people would. Um, so in running that program and working with New York City's textile waste on a really massive scale, um, a few designers reached out to me and asked if they could use the city's program for their commercial textile waste, which was fabric samples, rolls of fabric, um, sample garments even that hadn't been quite finished or mutilated, mocked-up items, um, and it wasn't quite the right fit. Um, a lot of the nonprofits in the city prefer finished garments, not half of a pair of shorts or a bolt of wool. Um, and there really was no great place to send them. The same infrastructure, the nonprofit infrastructure, didn't exist for fabric and the raw materials as it did for clothing. So um, around the time like 20 or 30 designers had spoken up about this issue is when I like, realized there was a bigger problem and that there could be a potential solution. And that's where FabScrap came from. How many designers are you working with right now? We're working with 180 now. Wow. Yeah. How long did it take you to get to that 180? Um, we launched in September 2016, so a year and a half. Not long at all. Very fast, which I think speaks more to the problem than to FabScrap um, doing good marketing. I think the problem's just so big that enough people have reached out. And some pretty prominent names. Yes, yeah. Um, we're working with... Mark Jacobs, Oscar De La Renta, J. Crew, um, Eileen Fisher, Mara Hoffman, really, I mean, Express is on board, really big companies that most people, we wear their clothing, but we don't think about the waste created when that clothing is being designed and made. So all this fabric comes in. Mm -hmm. You sort the fabric. Yes. You mentioned you have a thrift store, right? So yes. people can come in and actually get this fabric for use. What amazing fabric, too, if they're, be, they're being used by these high-end designers. Oh, the fabric is incredible. It's really high-end, beautiful fabric. Um, so, yeah, we have volunteers who come to help us sort the fabric, and we're really sorting for big enough to use or small enough to recycle. Um, if it's over a yard, we keep it, hoping that somebody can make something great with it. Um, what's interesting is about 55% of the fabric that we get is over a yard and totally reusable. Um, the smaller stuff gets shredded and becomes insulation or carpet padding, moving blankets. But then we have the thrift store set up with all of the usable yardage. Um, it's been really popular with fashion design students because it's super high-quality fabric. It's very cheap, and there's no minimums. So you can really come and just get what you need for one project. Great. Robert, what inspired rescuing leftover cuisine? Sure, yeah. I, f I feel like it's a super long story, but <laughs> um, uh, essentially I came across a club that brought leftover dining hall food to homeless shelters. While you were at NYU, While, right? I, was at, okay. while I was at NYU. 
And uh, that's when I first kind of learned about the, the concept of food rescue and kind of learned a lot about different organizations that existed in the space and learned about kind of some of the re restrictions and uh, minimum pound requirements that a lot of organizations kind of had that uh, basically meant that there were a lot of restaurants that wanted to donate their food but didn't have uh, an outlet to. Uh, so you don't have a requirement. Yeah, we have uh, no minimum, but I mean, w we basically say if you can feed five people with it, just find five people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, um, after that club, we, we realized that it could just be applied uh, outside of NYU and across uh, pretty much uh, any borders. And so we launched Res Rescuing Electric Cuisine with added technology and added incentives for food donors and food business partners uh, to get more incentives uh, for doing something like this. And uh, after working at J.P. Morgan and, and all of our, our team members worked at different kind of places for a bit, we came back and uh, are working on, on Rescue and Cuisine full-time. Yeah, you left a job in finance at yeah. J.P. Morgan to do this full-time. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was about four years ago. I understand this is also personal for you yes, as well, is, uh, because yeah. you're the child of Korean immigrants. That's right. My parents came uh, directly uh, from Korea. They didn't know any English, and they essentially kind of struggled a little bit. And, uh, you know, I still, I, I remember times when my parents would just get meals so that, you know, we could eat, and, you know, I didn't think anything was wrong. I would just be like, why are you not eating, guys? Um, but, but as I grew older, I kind of realized that, obviously, that's not normal, and, uh, you know, because of that, I, I kind of grew up with the, uh, the values of never wasting food. And, and that's kind of why when I came across the concept of food rescue, I became so obsessed with the model. Uh, and, and I really wanted to expand it everywhere because the, the fact that no one has to be hungry in the U.S. or across the world because we produce enough food to feed everyone just blows my mind. Um, and I really want to make it so that we can give access to everyone uh, with the food that we already produce. I understand there were also two Korean myths <laughs> that you grew up living by. Can you share those? Yeah. They're great. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so when I was growing up, my, my mom would always tell me that um, you know, if we wasted any food, my brother and I would have to eat all the food we ever wasted in our afterlives as a form of punishment. <laughs> and so it kind of reminds me of like a Simpsons episode or something, but we <laughs> I just never wanted to eat all the, the food I hated all at once, so I just ate everything. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then the other one was, uh, you know, for every grain of uh, rice on your bowl left over would be a future pimple on your wife's face. So... <laughs> all these strong all this, incentives. Yeah, all, <laughs> all this karmic uh, <laughs> kind of punishment. So I, uh, I ate everything I had and, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, kind of grew with me. Jessica, I understand there's also a personal story behind Fab Scrap as well, because you grew up in a family that did not recycle, right. but you carried in, you carried out when you went <laughs> camping with your family, yeah, right? Yeah, um, we lived in rural New Mexico, um, and we actually brought our own waste to a transfer station every weekend. We didn't even have like municipal collection, um, and so we definitely weren't recycling, but we did a lot of backpacking, and in that case, you have to take everything out that you bring in with you, everything um, and so you become very aware of wrappers and leftover food containers um, tissues like everything has to be packed out with you and so that really made it obvious for me that like so many things are wrapped that don't need to be and how much waste you create even in just like a two-day backpacking trip um, when you're really carrying the lightest possible load 
Um, and so, yeah, I think that really was where I caught the waste bug, and I've been interested in waste ever since. Serge, let's talk about the effect on the environment. If this stuff ends up in the waste stream, just how significant is that impact? So the, the total textile waste takes about 5% of our total municipal waste. Uh, each and average person discards approximately 70 pounds of uh, textiles per year. So if you just take New York City, for example, 8 million people, uh, 8 million people times 70 pounds, uh, I'm going to do a quick calculation in my head, is like 1.5 billion. Is that right? Maybe. It's got a lot Maybe of a mathematician. I'll <laughs> take your word for it. Uh, it it's, anyway, it, it's a... F- I don't know. It's, it's, a lot of, it's, a lot of, uh, it's a lot of waste. So, uh, yeah, if this problem can be prevented, it, it'll, uh, everybody wins. You know, there's no, there's no losers in preventing textile waste. Uh, if you recycle the material, it could be reused as other material. If uh, clothing can be worn, it could be reused as other clothing. And uh, saving uh, money in landfill space is uh, also a win for everybody. Jessica, anything you want to add to that? on the effects on the environment that you're trying to mitigate through sure. fabric? Yeah, I mean, textiles in any form, whether it's finished clothing or just fabric that gets thrown away, um, I think a lot of it now is made from synthetic materials. It's a lot of polyesters and nylons, and that never fully breaks down. And so when you just think about what is entering the water systems and when there's floating plastic islands the size of Texas, a lot of that does come from fibers from our clothing. Um, And then even in landfill, things might never break down the way that you think that they will. And so I think keeping any textiles out of landfill when they could be reused or properly recycled and extending the life of those fibers makes a big difference. Robert, what kind of impact does thrown out food have on the environment? Yeah, I think um, not many people know about the environmental impacts of food waste. But um, when you kind of think about the supply all the way to the production side, all the way to... The consumer side, uh, so much natural resources goes into producing food. For example, half the U.S. land, 80% of U.S. fresh water, 10% of the U.S. energy budget is all used to produce food and then bring that food to our tables. And when we're wasting 40% of that, that's a huge, huge impact. And then even after you eat it and you, you throw out some of it, when it goes to landfills, it doesn't actually get to go through normal processes. It gets all piled up, as, as mentioned, in landfills. And it actually emits methane gases instead of just normal kind of harmless gases. And that's 30 times worse for the environment than carbon dioxide. So if you took just food waste as a whole as a carbon emitter and ranked it as a country, uh, it would rank third, right after USA and China, as top carbon emission emitters. So food waste, I mean, you know, obviously we all want to be, you know, uh, kind of carbon conscious and, and, and reduce our carbon footprint. One of the things that we can do is reduce food waste personally uh, three times a day when you eat. Uh, just you know, make sure you're not wasting any food. How quickly do you need to act to rescue food? Food spoils quickly. Yes, yes it does. Um, so as an organization, we have to adhere to all the food safety standards uh, and ensure that the food that we're providing is safe and good quality and all that stuff. So we basically ensure that we adhere to those same standards, which is that potentially hazardous food can't be left out in the temperature danger zone, which is 40 degrees to 140 degrees for more than two hours. So we do all of our pickups within an average 30 minutes, no more than an hour, so it's well within that time limit. Do you rely on volunteers to do these pickups? Yes, 100%. Yes, we 
uh, we, we rely on a ton of volunteers, which is uh, what we always need. And uh, the only limiting factor to this is volunteers, actually, the people bringing the food from place to place. So we need a lot of people to sign up on our website at rescuinglifecuisine.org slash calendar, where you can actually see all the pickups and events that are happening, um, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Jessica, how instrumental are your volunteers? Um, I don't know if FabScrap would exist without our volunteers. Um, in 2017, we had 600 people who came and spent time at FabScrap, so it's a really significant part of our operations when we're bringing in um, a ton, a ton and a half of fabric uh, each week. We have volunteers who sort through it to help us get the reusable stuff into the thrift store and the smaller stuff to the shredder. Um, and as a thank you, we let every volunteer keep five pounds of fabric for free. Um, so I think that helps helps pull people in. So do you have many design students then? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fashion students because um, they're learning about textile waste, they're learning about the fabrics, they're getting some trend forecasting because they're seeing what designers were using, and then they get to leave with this beautiful stuff for their own projects. But we also have a lot of retirees who come and help out, a lot of quilters and quilting groups. And then we've started to have some corporate groups come through to volunteer too, which has been really cool. So do they get first dibs as they're sorting? They can say, this is for me, this is for someone yeah. else. We had to start making the bags that the sorters had anonymous because people would cherry pick certain brands to sort because they knew there'd be good stuff in there. Um, so yeah, as people are sorting, if you see something you like, you can set it aside. Now, speaking of bags, you give bags to your partners, mm -hmm. right, which they fill up and then you come collect. Exactly, yeah. So every partner brand that we work with gets reusable fab scrap bags. Um, they fill them. They hold about 50 pounds of fabric at a time. And then when the bags are full, they just call us and we come and pick them up. And during pickup, we leave them with the empty ones so they're never without bags. Sir, are you also relying on volunteers? So volunteers are something that we're looking to get into. But uh, currently our, our system works is that we try to hire people who are either with a disadvantage or, or have other hard times finding employment and finding a place that they would fit. So we, what we do is we use the revenue from our sales of the unwanted clothing that can be reused as clothing to, uh, to support the payroll of these people. So, Robert, let me ask you, should customers be holding restaurants accountable, 100%. putting pressure on them to donate their food? Yes, definitely. Uh, and I think um, there's many instances of consumers uh, kind of dictating what um, supermarkets and, and other food businesses do. Um, and in the case of food waste, I don't think uh, many people really think about, um, you know, what happens to the, to the food that, hap that is cooked and then not actually prepared and given out to the public. So... If uh, we have this campaign that we do every year called RLC Restaurant Week, um, where we basically ask our volunteers and our supporters to only eat at RLC partner restaurants, or at least restaurants that are doing something about food waste, to basically uh, show that consumers care about this and that they will put their money where their mouth is and actually use their dollar votes to support companies that are actually doing something about food waste. Uh, because other than that, other like without that, uh, no company would do it. Uh, and, you know, that's huge. Jessica, should similar pressure be put on those who are manufacturing clothing? Yeah, I think so. There's um, so much waste in the fashion industry. It's actually behind oil, um, the second largest polluting industry on the planet. Um, so the fashion industry has a lot of changes to make, and I think consumers have a part there in just asking, like, what is this made of? How was it made? Where was it made? And so just asking can help a lot. Um, yeah, I think consumers have a part to play. And we're probably about a decade behind the food movement in terms of organic and people really caring what goes in their body. 
um, now we're starting to think about what we put on our body. Well, that's all the time we have for the special collaboration between public radio station WFUV and BronxNet focusing on reducing waste. I want to thank our guests, Robert Lee, Jessica Schreiber, and Serge Lazarev. For more information about the programs they're involved with or to simply find out more about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit WFUV.org slash Strike Accord. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up this half hour, we bring you one more story about waste reduction efforts. As the summer weather heats up, New Yorkers are reaching for more cold beverages. Whether they're sipping, slurping, or gulping a cold drink, they're usually doing it through a plastic straw. But a movement is afoot to eliminate the plastic straw because of its potentially devastating impact on the environment. WFUV's Julia Rist has more. Dr. Judy Weiss has been studying marine biology for over 40 years. She's a biology professor at Rutgers University, and she says when she takes students to observe the ocean, she's often alarmed by what she finds. As we went down there for field trips, there was plastic all over, bottles, straws. City Council member Rafael Espinal Jr. is trying to change that. He's introducing a bill to ban plastic straws from eateries in New York City. The bill would prohibit bars, restaurants, and other service establishments from offering single-use plastic straws or stirrers with drinks. Espinal says plastic straws can have a destructive impact on the environment, and if people keep using them, it will only get worse. By 2050, we will have more plastic floating in our ocean than we have fish swimming in it. Espinal says more than 130 restaurants have already signed on to the Give a Sip campaign. This campaign was started by the Wildlife Conservation Society to promote a plastic straw-free New York City. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio says eliminating plastic straws is the natural next step after getting rid of plastic bags in the city. If I had it my way, you would be enjoying your last plastic straws in New York City. This change comes amid a growing effort across the U.S. to eliminate the use of plastic. Seattle and Malibu have already banned plastic straws, and California and Hawaii are considering banning them. I'm Julia Rist, WFUV News. And that's it for the special presentation of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign focused on waste reduction. I'm George Boldarki. Cityscape returns next week.